Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Well, my friends, welcome to the season finale of Thoughts on Record. It's time for another fireside chat with yours truly, Dr. B. Kelly. Why have I let off with a wonderful Christmas time? Well, when I was younger, I used to work at Canadian Tire. And for the American listeners, it's sort of like a Lowe's or something similar to that with a uh, giant auto parts component to it. And I have a very clear memory of absolutely hating this song every Christmas time because it would be played incessantly. It has sort of a quasi annoying kind of synth beginning to it. And it just seemed like, again, it was just like on all the time. And I found myself often questioning if this was the same guy and of course, I'm referring to Paul McCartney here, who, who wrote Let It Be Yesterday, which, by the way, is an amazing movie. You haven't seen it. Hey Jude, and, and just so many other amazing Beatles songs. And just as a totally random thought before I get to some of the fun facts around this song, it's amazing how powerful smell is at evoking memories. I mean, to this day, every time I walk into a Canadian tire and smell the rubber from the tire inventory, I'm instantly 18 years old again and heading in the door for yet another shift of seeing if I can read the label faster on the product than the customer when they, when they had a question. And I guess while I have the floor, my sincere apologies to all patrons of the 10th line Canadian Tire hardware department in the late 1990s for some questionable uh, advice and service at times. I was, I was trying my best, but I must admit I did not know a whole lot at that particular point in time. In any case, some fun facts around a wonderful Christmas time. McCartney wrote the song in the key of B major and recorded it entirely on his own during the sessions for his solo project, McCartney 2. And following its release as a standalone single in the United Kingdom, it peaked at number six in the UK singles chart. I don't think it did quite as well in North America, uh, but it did do quite well overseas. And including royalties from cover versions, it's been estimated that McCartney makes upwards of $400,000 a year from this song, which puts its cumulative earnings at well over $15 million. And I hope in light of this that Sir Paul won't mind that I've borrowed a bit of this tune for the intro. I'd be happy to be his roadie on a subsequent tour to work off any royalties owed if it comes down to it. Uh, Just a little bit of podcast housekeeping. I've made the decision to go with releasing episodes on a bi-weekly basis. Just to be totally honest about it, I've been finding it a real challenge to keep up with all of the books and the prep required. Of course, I really want to have high quality conversations. It requires a lot of prep and putting a lot of thought into what we're going to talk about every week has just felt a little bit relentless. And this is something that I want to do for the long run. So I've made the decision to back off to every two weeks. And I, I feel like that's going to be a better balance and allow the po- podcast to continue on for, you know, hopefully indefinitely. And certainly as long as there's interest for it as well, we have an email now, oicbtpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments and feedback. I love in particular to get any feedback or suggestions that you might have around guests that you'd like to see on the podcast or topics that you'd like to see covered. I think that would be really, really helpful. And I just want to give a quick thank you to regular listener Patrick for his really helpful feedback around this and reaching out with with that particular suggestion. So thanks again, Patrick. I really appreciate you listening and for providing the feedback. Super helpful. And of course, uh, there's a little bit of a disclaimer around the email 
Certainly while we're going to read all the emails, we're not able to reply to all messages that are sent. And emailing thoughts on record does not establish a clinician-patient relationship with the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And, and of course, we're not able to provide any comment or advice with respect to either general or specific clinical or personal situations. I really just want to say a huge thank you for supporting the podcast. I know there's so much content that's out there these days, just a mind-numbing amount of podcasts are available. And the fact that anyone's listening is simply amazing to me. So thank you so much for that. A review on Apple Podcasts is always appreciated and it really helps set the stage for booking wonderful guests. When I do reach out to people, for sure, they're looking at the Apple Podcast reviews, Googling the podcast. So the more positivity there is out there around the podcast, the better. It just really helps to get the best uh, folks on to have the most interesting conversations possible. So again, thanks so much for listening. I'm uh, really, really humbled by all the support. Okay, so what's this podcast all about? Well, I've conceptualized the fireside chat as a chance to speak directly to mental health consumers and really just humans in general to try to get some helpful information out there. Last year, if you listened to the fireside chat, I of course covered the process of thinking through undertaking therapy and you know maybe what a mindset could be going into that because I know it's a scary proposition for people. And this year I thought I'd talk about depression because, well, it's depressing right now uh, with the pandemic raging on and the advent of the Omicron variant and just everything that's going on with that. In really big picture, depression is one of the most common presentations that we see as clinicians. Of course, while there is a difference between major depressive disorder and just day-to-day -day depression that we experience as human beings, low mood and dysphoria really is part of the fabric of being a human being. And so I want to speak to that from a couple of different angles. I'd also like to review the symptoms of depression so that people have a better opportunity to perhaps recognize what's going on for them. I also want to talk about some of the subtypes of depression, as well as a very brief mention around bipolar disorder and some of the unique challenges there. I also want to talk about the risk factors and warning signs for suicide Certainly suicide does go with depression, but it goes with many other forms of mental illness as well. And sometimes there's no other symptoms that are going along with it. And suicide can be a standalone uh, event for some individuals. So we'll have a little bit of a chat about that. I, of course, want to discuss the mechanics of depression from an evolutionary and cognitive behavioral perspective. Lots to say about that. And those who listen to the podcast on a regular basis will recognize a lot of those themes and discussions that we've had, but certainly there'll be some new stuff in there as well. And finally, I want to review what I'd view to be effective coping with depression based on some of the ways that we think about depression from a CBT perspective. I want to give you some thoughts around thinking about seeking therapy uh, for depression as well, some quick thoughts on medication, as well as some of my recommended self-help resources, mainly some of the books that I find myself recommending to clients on a regular basis. Okay, so I thought I would start off by talking about some of the major symptom clusters in depression. In a uh, moment or two, I'm going to talk about specifically about how we diagnose major depressive disorder. But in general, I just wanted to lay out and describe some of the symptom clusters that typically occur in the context of depression. So the first cluster would be cognitive symptoms. These would be things like poor concentration, indecisiveness, challenges with memory, executive function, uh, frequent thoughts of poor self-esteem, thoughts of hopelessness, suicidal thoughts or what we call ideation, as well as maybe even delusional thoughts. Now, interestingly, we have a lot of the clients come in for assessment for ADHD and what sometimes we end up diagnosing is major depressive disorder as the primary challenge, which also has a lot of the executive function, working memory, processing speed challenges that we see in ADHD. So for clients who are having those cognitive disturbances, 
while it may be tempting sometimes to conclude that it's ADHD, very frequently we find that it's depression that is the primary culprit in those instances. Now, that's not to say they, they can't occur together, and it can be tricky to tease apart the two, but there's some telltale patterns that we look for around that. But in any case, I just wanted to let people know that challenges in cognition go with many other forms of mental illness, not just ADHD. And it's a real source of uh, confusion for folks when they are trying to self-evaluate what's going on for them. In addition, there are symptoms that fall under the cluster of physiological and behavioral uh, challenges. So we have, of course, problems to do with sleep, either too much or too little, problems to do with appetite, again, either too much or too little. There can be psychomotor challenges where the person either feels way slowed down, like they're filled with lead, or the opposite, feeling fidgety, restless, not able to settle down or sit still. Uh, there's sometimes cases of catatonia where the person essentially is immobilized and not moving. Fatigue, low energy uh, fall under this category as well. We can also see uh, immune disturbance, and although that's not a diagnostic criteria, we've, it's a very often a laboratory finding of research studies looking at depression. Uh, chronic pain is also something that goes with depression. And again, while not a diagnostic symptom, it's very frequent for clients who are diagnosed with depression or who have subsyndromal depression to have aches and pains of various varieties, tension, headaches, back pain, GI disturbances, things like that. From an emotional perspective, we see things, of course, like sadness, depressed mood, anhedonia, which is a loss of interest or pleasure in usual activities that we typically enjoy. But there can also be things like irritability, anger, uh, sensitivity to interpersonal rejection. And again, those aren't necessarily part of the diagnostic construct of depression, but we as clinicians very frequently see this co-occur. So again, these three clusters of cognitive physiological and behavioral and emotional symptoms would comprise the construct of depression. Some of these are diagnostic, some of them are more anecdotal. From the perspective of diagnosing major depressive disorder, the DSM has a very specific definition, namely the individual must be experiencing five or more symptoms during the same two-week period for most of the day, nearly every day, and at least one of those symptoms need to be, needs to be either one of depressed mood or a loss of interest or pleasure in things that used to be enjoyable. Uh, again, you just need one of those, but in many instances, people have both. Now, again, I've mentioned a lot of the symptoms uh, that can go along with depression, but I'll list you the ones that are listed within the diagnostic construct. So in, in addition to depressed mood and or loss of interest or pleasure and things that you used to enjoy, things like significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or a decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day, a slowing down of thoughts or, and or a reduction of physical movement or feeling restless, or fidgety. And again, typically this is a, a big enough of a change that it's observable by others. Fatigue or loss of energy just about every day. Feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. A diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. Recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. And finally, to receive a diagnosis of depression, these symptoms must cause the individual clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. The symptoms must also not be a result of substance use or another medical condition. So again, just to summarize, the two cardinal symptoms are depressed mood and or loss of interest or, or pleasure in things that you used to enjoy. And again, there's a whole other subset of symptoms, which I've just gone through, of which you must endorse either three or four, depending on how many of those cardinal symptoms that you endorse. And there must be an impact upon functioning and the symptoms must not be 
a result of substance use or another medical condition. So again, that's the very specific framework that we use to diagnose major depressive disorder. There are a whole bunch of caveats associated with this, which I'm not going to go into, you know, just off the top of my head. Why a two-week period? Why not three weeks? Why not a month? Two weeks is a pretty short period of time. Again, one of the challenges with the DSM is that it's a sort of a consensus position-driven uh, document as opposed to something that's completely derived by research. So in, in some instances, these, these are a little bit arbitrary. And again, there are way more symptoms that are available as part of the diagnostic construct than one needs to endorse to have that diagnosis. So in effect, there's if you mix and match all the symptoms together, there are many, many, many different faces of depression in terms of what it could look like. And apropos to that, I want to spend just, again, just a little bit of time talking about some of the diagnostic, what we call specifiers or subtypes as far as major depressive episodes go. Uh, you can have a major depressive episode with anxious distress where there's prominent anxiety symptoms. When I worked at a psychiatric hospital here in town, I worked in the anxiety disorders program. We used to get referrals all the time for folks to be assessed for treatment for an anxiety disorder. And a lot of the time it would turn out that the major diagnosis was major depressive disorder of which they had anxious features or anxious distress. There was no actual anxiety disorder. It was really best conceptualized as being under the umbrella of that major depressive episode. You can have a what's called a mixed episode or episode with mixed features where you have some of the features of hypomania or, or mania going on, which I'll talk about in a moment. You can have a depressive episode with melancholic features where there's an, a marked inability to experience pleasure. Nothing moves the needle. The person cannot be cheered up. Uh, there's a very distinct kind of depressive mood where the person's kind of more almost numbed out as opposed to sad. In, in a melancholic depressive episode, depression is usually worse in the morning. There's often early morning awakening. That's often to do with cortisol release. There's marked what we call psychomotor retardation or agitation. And there can be significant weight loss or restriction of food intake and often a lot of excessive guilt, sometimes almost bordering on uh, being delusional. A depressive episode can have also psychotic features where the, there's a delusion or hallucinations that go along with the mood, although sometimes it can be what we call mood incongruent as well. There can be catatonic features where the person is not actively relating to the environment anymore. There could be mutism, mimicking another speech or movements. Typically, you'd only see this in an inpatient setting. A really interesting presentation is what we call atypical depression, where the person, normally when someone's depressed, if you say, hey, that's a really nice sweater, like, meh, you know, you're not going to move the needle too much. But when someone experiences an atypical depressive episode or has that as their pattern, they'll have real, they are capable of having really positive mood reactions to some events. Usually it's characterized by significant weight gain and an increase in appetite. There's excessive sleep, uh, a heavy or leaden feelings in the arms and legs. And in the background, there's usually a long-standing pattern of sensitivity to interpersonal rejection. Some folks can have a, what, what we call a seasonal pattern to their depressive episodes where usually the winter time, they're going to experience a marked decrease in mood. And sometimes that's going to respond favorably to light therapy. And finally, there's peripartum onset where there can be an onset of a major depressive episode either during pregnancy or in the four weeks following delivery, although in reality, that period can be extended out from, a, from the lens of a clinician. Okay, so that's just a little bit of a admittedly whirlwind tour through depression. I want to talk about bipolar disorder just for a moment. 
So bipolar disorder used to be called manic depressive disorder, and it's characterized by a distinct period of abnormally and persistently elevated, expansive, and or irritable mood that usually lasts at least one week or sometimes just a few days in the cases of hypomania. There can also be mixed episodes where you have symptoms of both. There's also rapid cycling permutations. I don't want to get into the weeds diagnostically, but suffice to say, some people do experience these periods of elevated mood, and it can be accompanied by a lot of different challenges, which I'll talk about. So someone who's experiencing mania or hypomania is going to report having an inflated self-esteem or or grandiosity, and not just feeling kind of good, like feeling like really good, like uh, in some cases that they're a god or have superpowers, can influence the weather, things like that. There's going to be a decreased need for sleep. For instance, the person is going to feel rested after only maybe a few hours of sleep or no sleep whatsoever. And if you follow that pattern out, usually the person just exhausts themselves. Usually someone who has hypomania or mania is going to be more talkative than usual, or there's going to be a pressure to keep talking. As a clinician, you can't miss this. You're You're going to have trouble getting a word in edgewise. You're going to see a flight of ideas or a subjective experience that thoughts are racing. I've had clients describe it to me as though it will reach a fever pitch where almost their brain is just screaming at them for all, you know, all their waking hours. It's, it's incredibly distressing. There can be lots of distractibility where the attention is too easily drawn to unimportant or irrelevant external stimuli. There can be an increase in goal-directed behaviors at, at socially, at work, at school, Often within the sexual domain, we'll see this, or there can be psychomotor agitation. The person simply can't settle or relax. And often there's excessive involvement in pleasurable activities that have a high potential for painful consequences, such as engaging in unrestrained buying sprees or shopping sprees, sexual indiscretions or foolish business investments, travel plans, things like that. And those consequences can be really, really destructive. And again, just like with major depressive disorder, these things have to be severe enough that they're causing real, real problems for the person and or distress or psychosocial consequences. It's very much the case that people who have mania end up in the hospital uh, and have to be given, it's, it's a psychiatric emergency in many cases. And usually there's a real come down after those uh, symptoms of hypomania or mania have abetted. Clients with bipolar 2 can experience severe and chronic depression, and they spend seem to spend a lot more of their time in a depressed mode than in the hypomanic mode. Um, sometimes we also see clients come in, uh, you know, maybe middle-aged or in their 30s where they've been reporting chronic depression, and they'll try an antidepressant for the first time, and this can evoke an episode of hypomania or even mania. It can flip them uh, into that mood state. And while this wouldn't qualify for a diagnosis of bipolar dis- disorder, it does reveal the person's underlying risk or vulnerability for bipolar disorder, maybe under more extreme circumstances or under in the face of an extreme stressor or something like that. Many of us have also seen that clients who, when they travel across time zones uh, and they experience jet lag, this can often evoke a hypomanic or manic episode. And just in general for managing bipolar disorder, sleep is really, really critical. So uh, for clients who do have bipolar disorder, having a sleep management strategy is typically mission number one as far as managing those symptoms goes. There are some really good cognitive behavioral approaches to bipolar as well. For today's episode, I will be focusing more on the cognitive behavioral therapies for depression more so than bipolar disorder. Perhaps I can cover that in another episode. Just a quick word about suicide. There's a couple patterns I want to point out. So lifetime risk for suicide does increase over time. So as people get older, both male and females, we see the risk of suicide go up. We do know that women attempt suicide far more frequently than men do, but men are more quote unquote successful with respect to suicide attempts. 
Usually this is because men choose more lethal means of ending their lives, including firearms, whereas women tend to veer towards more medication overdoses or things like that. So while women do attempt suicide more frequently, men end up having a higher mortality rate as a function of suicide attempts. For both genders, again, you see a steady rise over time. The highest suicide rates for men uh, typically tend to be for men in their kind of, in kind of middle age. And then there's a real jump up uh, for men who are over the age of 75. So men who are elderly, who have experienced a loss, diagnosis of a chronic illness, things like that, they, they would be people to keep an eye on with respect to managing suicide risk and self-harm. Again, for women, the, the rate of, of, again, quote unquote, successful suicide is much lower and it seems to be just sort of a steady rise over time with some a little bit of an increase in a uh, geriatric population, but not nearly as pronounced as what we see in men. And again, I mentioned this at the outset, suicide can go with depression and certainly it does. Uh, I believe the highest risk for suicide is actually a diagnosis of psychosis. And again, sometimes there's clients where there seems to be nothing going on from a mental illness perspective and out of the blue, they will make an attempt on their life that that can sometimes be the experience of family members where they have no idea what was going on and the person suddenly takes their life without warning. I believe I saw a study once where something like 40 to 50% of the time, even clinicians are shocked by someone taking their own life. And I also remember listening to a podcast or certainly reading a paper where I'm not sure the methodology, but they had basically arrived at this number of 10 minutes being the average time between someone, someone deciding to take their life and then taking action. So very often it can be sort of an impulsive act that there's not a lot of premeditation. I'll have a little bit more to say in terms of suicide risk in a, in a moment or around that specific point. Another point that's worth mentioning again, just, you know, sort of being interested around some of the dynamics around this is that the risk for suicide is highest, usually on the way up in terms of symptom exacerbation and then on the way down. And the reason for this is that when depressive symptoms are at this their worst, the person's usually bedridden, very anhedonic, maybe even catatonic. They're not moving. They don't really have the energy or motivation to do anything, including making an attempt on their life. And so it's often when people are getting better and family and friends will be so shocked, like, oh, hey, I thought they were doing better. They're doing great. It's because the energy comes back into the system. And so... For example, when people are released from hospital, that is typically an incredibly dangerous time because the person was probably so ill while they're, while they're in the hospital that there wasn't much motivation or risk for them harming themselves. And once the energy comes back into the system, they're released and there's less oversight and safety and structure around them. That is a time when unfortunately a lot of people will end up taking their lives. So I know when, I have, when I've had clients released from the hospital, that is a time where I try to keep a very close eye on them because you think, oh, there are the hospital things are, are getting better. And indeed, that might be true, but it is also also a time when suicide can uh, e emerge, unfortunately. So what are some of the warning signs and risk factors for suicide? Well, you know, this list is going to be long and many of these symptoms are very nonspecific. I'm going to try and clue you into some of the ones where you really want to pay attention if you have a family member or a friend or a client talking about this. So, of course, a family history of suicide is is a big predictor of whether someone has a heightened suicide risk. Drug or alcohol use is also a big one. Uh, there's many studies that suggest that 80 to 90% of the time when an individual completes suicide, they do have substances in their system at the time of death. Uh, I, we can speculate around the reasons why. Uh, a previous suicide attempt is a big predictor of suicide risk. Having a depressed mood, 
Hopelessness is one that's spoken about a lot. Typically that can be present in many clients with depression, but again, in the context of other signs and symptoms, it can be a real warning sign. One of the biggest ones that people don't talk about very much is insomnia. And many suicide attempts are often preceded by profound insomnia where the person hasn't slept for, for days in many cases. And this is often combined with intense agitation and irrationality. So that is very definitely something to look at very seriously. Sometimes there can be a decline in work performance. Again, that is a very nonspecific symptom, but again, in within context can be something to look for. Social withdrawal as well. Speaking about suicide in either vague or concrete terms. Uh, sometimes a sudden or unexplained improvement improvement in mood, one that is sort of a flight into health, as we would say as clinicians, uh, can be a warning sign. Perhaps the person feels resolved or at peace with their decision. So you want to be on the lookout for that. The diagnosis of a serious illness or the death of a loved one can often be a risk factor for suicidality, some sort of financial calamity. I know from working with my police officer clients that they will often arrive at the scene of a suicide and discover that someone has recently gone bankrupt or a business venture has fallen through or they've fallen for a scam or something similar. So financial calamity in particular for men can be a real uh, challenge. Of course, dissolution of a romantic relationship, especially perhaps among a younger person who doesn't have the life experience to temper or buffer that experience can be a real risk factor. And then things like an intense humiliation of some kind, being arrested, uh, maybe for something, you know, quite egregious or shameful, being fired from a position, uh, those can be risk factors as well. And I want to say this, you know, of course, as clinicians, we do, we take this issue very seriously. We put into place safety plans. We have very clear sort of protocols and, and assessment tools that we use for suicidality. But even for an experienced clinician, suicide can be very hard to predict. Talking about suicide does not increase the risk of someone taking their own life. So if you are concerned about someone's safety, check in with them. Check it out. See what's going on. Have an open conversation about it. You're not going to make it more likely by talking about it. You might even, you know, have a reasonable chance of saving the person's life if you do take that step and try to broach the subject. It can be very difficult. You can say things like, hey, I'm really concerned. I, I see that you're struggling. Are, are you okay? And asking sometimes even very point blank, have you been thinking about harming yourself? Uh, have you been have you been thinking about taking your life? And understanding that that is a very difficult thing for people to talk about. It's going to evoke shame. Uh, and, and maybe a sense of worthlessness that they are already struggling with. So try to be as kind and empathic as possible. There are resources available in the show notes. I'm going to have links to various crisis lines that can be reached within Canada, the U.S., and internationally. If you are experiencing suicidal ideation, please go seek help. Go to your nearest emergency department or consult your treatment team. Do reach out for help. There is help available. And I would also say you're, you're not alone. This is a very, it's very common to struggle with thoughts of suicidal ideation, and oftentimes we think of it as a problem solving strategy, that it's the only thing that's going to make things better when in reality, there are so many other resources that are available. So again, if you're considering taking your life or you're feeling suicidal, please give someone the opportunity to help you. There are things that can be done and real and real help is available. Okay. So I want to have a bit of a discussion around why we get depressed and maybe even before that, just talking about why we experience depression in the first place and some of the differences between normal depression. That's part of the fabric of being a human being versus major depressive disorder stuff like that. So I think the first point I want to make is that all emotions have a function. There's no such thing as negative or positive emotions. There are just emotions and they can be either pleasant or unpleasant to experience. 
and they all have a message to convey to us around what's going on in our life. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to follow up with it or that it's exactly accurate, but there are no wrong feelings in a sense because the adaptive function of that emotion has been triggered for whatever reason. It's letting us know that there's something going on, and then we can have a broader conversation around what we might want to do about that or how we think about that. Depression prompts us to attend to and process a negative event mostly, usually a loss of some kind. And I'll talk about this in just a moment, some of the evolutionary perspectives around why we become depressed. So typical losses would be something like the loss of a loved one, loss of our health, loss of an opportunity or social standing. Those are all potent stressors and events which can evoke depression. And, you know, this is kind of ingenious on the part of nature. And, and again, I'm anthropomorphizing here. There's no thought put into it per se. It's, evolution is obviously selected for this reaction. But, you know, given the choice, you know, we would probably just want to gloss over bad things. And the symptoms of depression force the issue. For example, our sad or low mood will clue us into something bad has happened to let us know that we've, we've suffered a loss that part of our resource, a resource that we use to manage our body budget has been taken away from us or, or slipped through our fingers. Anhedonia or that loss of interest or pleasure keeps us from distracting ourselves. It makes, you know, our brain renders nothing to be appealing so that we will focus on what is going on and we don't, we won't just get lost in distraction. Things like guilt or low self-worth. This is an automatic mechanism to get us to consider whether we need to change a behavior or rectify a situation to prevent another loss. Again, rightly or wrongly, a lot of us can overcook guilt and uh, we, we turn to a path of self-emulation in terms of trying to figure out what happened. Uh, but at the very least, it is a invitation to consider perhaps socially where things have gone wrong. Uh, rumination. Uh, rumination focuses, forces us to think about what has happened and what to do about it in problem-solving steps to, that we can take. Low energy. It slows us down, gets us to conserve resources in the face of a loss. And again, Lisa Feldman Barrett talks a lot about body budget and how other people help us to regulate our budget. And when we lose somebody, we've lost some of that capacity to top up the budget. So we need to slow down and conserve energy. And finally, things like social withdrawal, it affords us time to appropriately assess and process the loss without social interference. Interestingly, the symptoms are also very visible to others. If, you, if you've seen someone who's depressed, if you've been depressed yourself, it's very obvious to the outside world. And those, signal, those symptoms can act as a signal to others that we're in need of support. Now, the interesting thing is that while this works in the short term, it can backfire in the long run. And what happens, and there's very clear data about this, is that as a depressive episode rolls on and the person gets stuck in it, they're actually going to likely experience a withdrawal of support as people get sort of worn down of managing the symptoms. And so that can be very, very challenging. The person gets stuck. I'll talk a little bit more in the coping section around how we can prevent from getting into that dynamic. So I think a, a good metaphor to use when considering how our how depression works is to think about how our body reacts when we are sick. So for instance, our immune system deactivates us through low energy, low motivation, lethargy, pain in order to afford us the opportunity to, to recover. And indeed, our psychological immune system, if I can use that as a metaphor, deactivates us in the same way in the face of a loss or an insult of some kind. And, you know, just as an aside, this may be even more than a metaphor because there is good evidence that there is immune disturbance in at least a subset of individuals who experience a depressed mood. It might even be these immune mediators like cytokines, things like that, when they cross the blood-brain barrier or cause a cascade of chemicals in the brain that cause a disruption to neurotransmitters, and then we experience depressed mood. So anyway, it, I think it's both metaphor and there might even be a direct linkage there. 
Now, one of the guests I've had on the podcast previously, Dr. Randy Nessie, he's an evolutionary psychiatrist. He's written an amazing book called Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. He talks a lot about sort of four main causes of depression. And so I just wanted to quickly go through those. And again, this is just an overview. I invite you to check out both the discussion that we had as well as his book for an elaboration on this. And when I'm assessing for depression, I'm usually looking to see whether I can conceptualize the person's challenges as to falling into one of these four buckets. And often I do. And having a good conceptualization is really important to be able to get a proper treatment plan together. So anyway, the first one is, is the depression potentially organic in nature or predominantly due to what we call biological causes? This is where things tend to be going generally okay. There's no obvious stressors. Uh, the person's psychosocial support network is intact, their health is good, no recent major losses, and yet they find themselves depressed day and dead or having experiencing a loss of interest or pleasure in day-to-day activities. Typically, this kind of depression is going to respond well to antidepressants. It's not exactly clear how antidepressants work. We know they do, of course, impact on things like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, but there's the neurochemical imbalance hypothesis has never really borne fruit. And it's very clear now that, that there's way more t- to the story than this. Another really interesting book I can recommend is Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. Uh, really, really cool overview of and, and really compelling overview of not only the history of psychiatry, but also the history of psychiatric and psychotropic med- medications. Medications absolutely have their place. I have seen them be life-changing for people. Uh, I have also seen them do absolutely nothing. And the frustrating thing is we don't often know exactly who's going to respond to what. And there seems to be quite a bit of a placebo effect built in there as well. As does every medication. There's nothing new in that respect. So so all, all that to say, if you're taking a medication and it's working for you, wonderful. It's not exactly clear how these things work. But again, we do know that in some instances, they're they are life-changing, if not life-saving. Okay, so once we've worked through whether the depression probably has a primarily organic cause to it, and again, we, we, would, we wouldn't deny someone psychotherapy in those instances. Usually the best combination is medication plus a psychotherapy. But if we work through that piece, the next thing I'm looking for is the presence of a traumatic loss of some kind, or maybe just a loss in general, as I've outlined previously. So something like the death of a loved one, but you know that, that gets kind of slippery because then we're talking about, is that grief? And of course the DSM has things like complicated grief, but really what is is a normative reaction in the face of a loss. You know, if, if you really love somebody, that loss never really goes away and, and the grief might be ongoing permanently in some fashion. So, you know, we tend to sort of be as flexible as possible in, in terms of thinking about mood in the face of a loss. More commonly, it's loss to do with something like a job or a marriage or health status or something like that. And again, that's feeling depressed, quote unquote, in the face of those circumstances is often very adaptive. Sometimes we call this reactive depression where it's, it's sort of brief, circumstantial and related to something that's going on. Another common one that I see as a clinician is failure to give up on an unachievable goal of some kind. So for instance, a common one I see is that a relationship will end. Perhaps the person didn't want it to end. And instead of feeling sad and moving through that and then moving on with their lives, they, they get, it's a stuck point. They get stuck in the mud, so to speak, around this relationship. They want it to reconstitute itself when it's not going to, and it can lead to uh, just feeling really mired down in depression. Or sometimes maybe somebody uh, you know loses a job and they want the job back or some other kind of loss where basically it's a loss. It's very difficult to accept that 
the thing is over or gone or inaccessible. The person keeps hoping that they're going to be able to uh, revisit that goal in some meaningful way, and they're just not going to be able to, and, it, and it's become a stuck point of some kind. And usually in those circumstances, what we're doing is helping the person to finally maybe grieve the loss so that the loss can actually take place, right? Because if you're not accepting a loss, it almost kind of keeps it in some sort of suspended animation where it hasn't really happened yet. So often that can be difficult work for people because they're connecting maybe for the first time with the fact that the loss actually really has taken place. But then the good news is, is that they enter into a grieving process. They feel sad as opposed to depressed, and then they move through it. And so that's, that's the work of therapy when someone is clinging onto something unachievable or something that they need to give up on. And finally, the last one is this really interesting idea of where it, it is very adaptive in the sense of sub- assuming a submissive stance in a relationship of some kind. And I'll, the common example that I use is within a work relationship where let's say you have an employee who's quite intelligent and you have a boss who maybe isn't quite as on the ball as this employee. Now, what's going to happen nine times out of 10 is that if the really sharp employee shows up that boss over and over again in meetings or presentations or in front of the directors or whatever, that manager is going to start to retaliate against that intelligent employee because they're making them look bad. They become a threat essentially. And so in order to keep from getting attacked or to be a threat, the really intelligent employee, despite being more talented than their boss, will assume the submissive stance within the relationship and they will kind of cower both behaviorally and psychologically. And the only way to reduce the distance between that position that you're taking in the relationship and your internal experience is to is to become depressed essentially. Like, so you will embody this sense of being depressed down on yourself, low self-esteem, because it's congruent with the way that you have to navigate the relationship, because that's the, that's the stance you have to take in order to keep from being attacked. Now, unfortunately, this dynamic plays out in marriages. It plays out in workplaces. It, It can play out in any domain in which you know, two people are essentially interacting and one of them has to assume a submissive stance in order to keep from getting attacked by the more dominant person. Again, that very reliably leads to uh, depression. Okay. So that's just a very brief summary of the evolutionary take on depression. And I think so far you you'll see that I framed it as largely as a, as an adaptive process that we could expect to happen in the face of stressors. And there's good reasons for that, especially in the face of loss. So the, the why is depression a problem, right? Well, while normally adaptive and, and it's supposed to be a time-limited reaction to loss, sometimes this process becomes dysregulated and stuck and it starts to interfere with our ability to function. And when this normal process goes awry, when it goes on for longer than it's supposed to, or it's more severe than it's supposed to relative to what's happened, then we call it major depressive disorder. And again, we want to be really clear that being depressed is not the same as being sad, down, feeling blue, things like that. That's normal. We all experience that. And indeed, it's normal to not feel very good at all in the face of a breakup or a divorce or the loss of a job or the death of a loved one. That's all to be expected. It's when the reaction is disproportionate to what's going on. It goes on longer than it's supposed to, or it's got features to, or or it's causing the person a lot of dysfunction then we start talk, having the discussion around whether this is, could be conceptualized as a major depressive disorder of some kind. And while not a perfect science, major depressive disorder is an illness with very specific and identifiable neurobiological, behavioral, and psychological components. And I want to be very clear here. There's no evidence that it has to do anything with, to do with being weak 
or lazy or anything like that. It, it can affect anyone. I have had many, 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 many super high functioning, really intelligent, motivated clients who have been struck down by depression for one reason or another. It has nothing to do with weakness or being lazy or anything like that. I would also say this, it's impossible to quote unquote snap out of it. You know, and, and often this is one of the biggest frustrations that people who experience depression have is that people around them are like, have you tried this? What about that? This, that, and the other thing. And they're like, oh yeah, I forgot that I should just be more positive about things. Right. So that stuff doesn't work for a lot of reasons that we'll talk about, but there are cognitive and behavioral tools to help someone to effectively manage and reduce symptoms. There are things that one can do, but it is, it is most definitely not a case of just quote unquote snapping out of it or getting your act together or anything like that. And it's certainly not about thinking more positively. It's about thinking more realistically, but I'll put a finer point on that in a moment. So because loss is so central to the experience of depression, I just want to spend a few more minutes talking about how loss can start a downward cycle that does turn into a major depressive episode. So one thing to understand is that loss events limit our ability to seek out mood boosting positive reinforcers through restraints on time, money, access to social support, et cetera, et cetera. For example, so think about the implications for self-care or coping in the face of the realities of ongoing unemployment. So imagine you've lost your job and you haven't been working for, for months on end. So you might have to get rid of your gym membership and your body image might now start to suffer. You might feel you can't hang out with your friends owing to shame or you know constant questions about how you're doing or how's the job search going or things like that. You might start avoiding new people because for fear of having to explain your situation over and over again and then people not understanding the nuance of it. Or you might have to start to sell a variety of possessions like your car, uh, which give you a sense of independence, competence, status, etc. So that, you know, the list goes on and on. You can just imagine. And it usually grows over time and starts to compound on itself. So long story short, in vulnerable individuals, loss can cause this cascading set of consequences that can ultimately trigger and maintain a depressive episode. So of course, not everybody who experiences a stress or a loss is going to experience depression. So who is vulnerable to depression? Well, we know that genetics account for maybe a third of the risk for developing major depressive disorder. Uh, that means that the environment also plays a very, very large role, right? In a, again, family dynamics, family of origin, adverse early life events, things like that. That makes a big difference. Uh, it's much higher for bi bipolar disorder with 66% of the risk being attributed to genetic factors. Bipolar disorder often very much runs in families, and that's part of our assessment. Did you ever have a relative who took a medication for mood swings, diagnosed with manic depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, things like that? We do ask those questions. I want to make it very clear, there is no depression gene. In terms of the genetic underpinning of depression, it's probably many, many, many collections of genes operating in concert with one another in combination with what's going on in the environment. Gender is also a known risk factor for depression. And depending on what study you're looking at, depression is 1.5 to three times more common for women. Contributing factors to this could be biological, as well as societal variables, there might be more responsibility that women are asked to bear more pressures around child rearing, career pressures, things like that. It may also be the case that men don't seek help for depression as frequently. And the conceptualization of depression may also be gendered as well. So for instance, in my experience, and in many other clinicians experience, men more frequently present with anger, irritability, and substance use than they do with sadness or anhedonia. So I think there's many instances where, where men are depressed, but in a very man-specific way, if I can put it that way. 
I've touched a little bit on the biological risk factors. And again, although many neurochemicals are probably involved, again, like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, the opioid system, you know, it's not exactly clear how that works, but we're getting closer and closer to have a better understanding around that. One of the biggest predictors of depression is an ongoing period of stress. Uh, depressive episodes often follow a stressful event, again, like divorce, unemployment, work-related stress, things like that. It can also come about through the cumulative effects of day-to-day hassles. Uh, that, those can also be damaging from that perspective. There's also cognitive risk factors. So we know that even when not depressed, individuals who are prone to depression will perceive events differently than than individuals who are not. There's a, uh, a bias towards seeing the glass as half empty, if you will. There's also certain personality traits that are highly associated with depression. One of the most uh, common and important appears to be perfectionism, and I'll have a little bit more to say about that later on. Previous trauma, as well as adverse early life effects, are big risk factors for depressive episodes in adulthood. And finally, a comorbid anxiety disorder is also a big risk for a depressive episode. And I want to put a finer point on that. Many depressive episodes are preceded, in fact, by an increase in anxiety and an increased period of anxiety. And what may happen is that behaviors associated with anxiety could increase stress levels or veer the individual away from healthy forms of coping and in a sense, setting them up for a depressive episode. And a heightened period of anxiety is often one of the first signs that is noticed by somebody Uh, when they look back on things. And it can often be considered a warning sign in vulnerable individuals once they get to know that pattern. So for many of my clients, if their anxiety starts to be high for a long period of time, I'll say, hey, you're in that zone where your anxiety has been high for a long period of time. If this keeps going, it's probably going to evolve into an episode of depression if history is any indicator. So we need to get out in front of this. So to that point, getting out in front of anxiety is often a very effective strategy for preventing the evolution of a depressive episode. I would also say this too, that there is some evidence that those individuals who experience a lot of anxiety when they're younger, as opposed to depression, will often have that pattern flip on itself as they get older, where they will experience less anxiety, but more depression in adulthood, middle age, and beyond. Okay, so I want to talk about some of the, again, mechanics of depression and how a depressive episode comes about from a CBT perspective. The first thing I want to draw you to is this notion of a mood loop. And a a mood loop is a resonant loop between our behavior and our mood that can sustain depression or really any mood on an ongoing basis. So I want you to imagine the following scenario. You have someone who's who's depressed. They wake up, their mood's apathetic, and then their behaviors, they go back to bed. And then they wake up mid-morning and because they've slept all day or all morning, I should say, they feel guilty And they don't want to feel that feeling. So maybe they just distract themselves by going down a YouTube wormhole. And then lunchtime rolls around and they feel kind of worthless because they've only gone back to bed and they've only, you know, watched YouTube all morning. And so to self-medicate those feelings away, they might have ice cream for lunch. And then by the afternoon, they feel hopeless. So they take a nap because they don't want to feel that anymore. And then by the evening, they're irritable. Maybe they reach for a drink which leads to feeling despondent, then they pass out, and then they end up, you know, starting the the next day, you know, even worse off than they started the day before. So the idea here is that when we act like a depressed person, we end up feeling like a depressed person because no depression inconsistent information can ever enter the system, right? So when you're going back to bed, when you're going down YouTube wormholes, when you're having ice cream for lunch, when you're having those long naps, drinking, passing out, all those kind of things, any of those 
beliefs that you're harboring about yourself that I'm no good, other people don't like me, I'm a waste of time, things like that, you are in a sense supplying information that dovetails or maps onto those cognitions through one's behavior, which causes more low mood, which causes more behavior. And you can see that it's kind of this snowball downhill. So again, these mood loops are these resonant loops between our mood and our behavior, and they can really cause things to go downhill and be sustained over time. So a big part of CBT is breaking this pattern and breaking the mood loop so you can get new information into the system so you can be, have uh, you know, your mood has a reasonable chance of not being depressed. And again, we'll talk about this in just a moment in terms of how to do this specifically. We also know from a CBT perspective that cognitive distortions play a big role in depression. And we, we know when people are depressed, their thinking becomes biased in a negative direction. Now, interestingly, the thinking, although negative, may actually be more realistic. There's some pretty good evidence for this. Most of us are walking around with a positivity bias. Folks who are depressed might actually be seeing things more realistically, but that may not be adaptive. And there are a number of well-known cognitive distortions that are activated when somebody is depressed. And I'll go through a few of these in a sec. Cognitive distortions are the brain's way of hedging against being surprised by additional loss, stress, or calamity. And in part, and perhaps understandably so, the depressed mind, you know, in some ways reorganizes itself around avoiding further loss. So a depressed mind is a mind that is optimized towards not experiencing anything else bad happening in the short term. So what are some examples of cognitive distortions? Uh, Things like black and white thinking, where everything becomes pass or fail or, or good or bad. We have overgeneralizing where we take a single event and inaccurately extrapolate a whole pattern from that one thing. Like nobody likes me ever. Mind reading, we imagine what others are thinking. Fortune telling, we predict the future in an overly negative fashion. Uh, Catastrophizing, always being drawn to the worst case scenario. Personalization, we take blame or assign blame for things unreasonably. And discounting the positive. Uh, Weighing good and bad outcomes unevenly. And this is the kind of thing where if you get a compliment, it doesn't really move the needle. But if if someone says one bad thing to you, even if if you don't like them at all, uh, it's going to maybe devastate you, something like that. Another important thing to think about in the context of depression from a CBT perspective is avoidance. And and for my money, this is the most toxic aspect of depression. Uh, So let's talk about this for a second. So distorted thoughts, things like why bother, nothing good will ever come from the situation anyway. And the physical symptoms such as low energy and and feeling not very motivated, these are going to lead to avoidance. And while avoidance behaviors provide a sense of short-term relief in the long term, they block the procurement of new data that we could, that could help to undo the content of the distorted thinking or the core belief that's maybe driving those that that distorted thinking. So, for example, you know, you could, if you do engage in change, you could potentially have the observation that you know going out was way more fun than I thought it would be, or overall my friends seem to be more understanding of my situation than I thought, or even when I'm really low on energy, I can still run a good meeting, things like that. So. The, the short-term relief provided by the avoidance also reinforces the avoidance and it makes it a lot more likely that the person will avoid in the future because it's worked, right? So say someone's feeling depressed, they don't want to go to a party, they might have the thought like, thank God I didn't go out, it, I would have been such a mess. Because they didn't go, we don't know if that's true, but because they've imagined this terrible scenario and they avoided that imagined terrible scenario, it's very reinforcing to them. It makes it more likely that they will avoid in the future. 
The avoidance also reinforces the content of the depressed thinking. So you can think about this, like if what we're thinking isn't true, then why are we avoiding it, right? So if your brain is watching you and it sees you avoiding people, then it's going to conclude, wow, it must be true that we are worthless because we have to avoid people because why would we avoid people otherwise? So it's very much a proof is in the pudding proposition. Uh, if I can use that saying where the brain's kind of just watching what we're doing. And if we act as though our automatic thoughts are true, they become true in a sense. Now, just a few moments ago, we talked about those mood loops and I walked you through the sort of time course of one day and how behavior can really sort of exacerbate mood over the course of one particular day. I want to now expand this out over a time course of months because this is in reality what happens. So Without meaning to, depressive episodes often get unwittingly engineered, if I can say that, over time through avoided behavior. We call this the TRAP model. And TRAP is an acronym, T-R-A-P. T stands for trigger, R stands for reaction, and the AP stands for avoidance pattern. So let's imagine the following scenario. So in month one, you've got this trigger. Text messages coming in from your friends. Your reactions that you feel overwhelmed, and your avoidance patterns that you don't respond. The consequence from that is now is that your friends stop texting you. So now in month two, we've got a new trigger, which is that our friends aren't texting us anymore. Our reactions that we feel guilty, our avoidance pattern is that we now avoid planned face-to-face social events because they're too awkward and uncomfortable, which generates a new consequence, which is that your friends give up completely. So by month three, we've got a new trigger, friends giving up on us, the reactions to feel worthless. The avoidance pattern is that we stop going to work perhaps. And the consequence there is that maybe we get low, let go of our job for performance-related issue. Now we've got, and our, and our finances are in poor shape, right? So now we've got the, again, we've got this cascade of consequences stemming from this initial avoidance. So now by month four, the new trigger is poor finances, the reactions to feel depressed, and the avoidance pattern might be to start to abuse alcohol, and then what's going to happen perhaps is maybe our partner becomes fed up and moves out or something to that effect. So you can see that in month one, we started off with a relatively minor problem of the trigger being that our we are receiving text messages from friends while we're feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And through a pattern of avoidance and the accumulation of psychosocial consequences, by month four, we're in a position where we've lost our finances, we're abusing alcohol, and we don't have a social support network around us anymore. Now, admittedly, this is a little bit of a cartoon example, but in all honesty, I can tell you, this is kind of how it goes. A little bit of avoidance picks up steam, rolls downhill, and by the time we see somebody in our office, typically three of the four legs of the table of life are starting to become wobbly in terms of maybe their health, their relationship, finances, work, things like that. It's a multifactorial problem at that point. So again, it's really important not to behaviorally avoid in the context of depression. It's like a, it's like one of those payday loan things, right? Like it only gets more catastrophically expensive over time and it becomes impossible to pay off at a certain point or certainly very difficult. Now, cognitive avoidance can be just as bad as behavioral avoidance. And the most common form of cognitive avoidance is rumination and worry. These are ways of avoiding experiencing our emotions. We just keep spinning in these side processes of rumination and worry instead of coming down on the thing that we might actually need to experience. And usually those things are things like uncertainty or uncontrollability or the fact that nobody knows the answer. Those are hard things to sit with. And so what happens is that when we experience those things, we ruminate and worry as a way of avoiding feeling those things. Like if I just think about it over and over and over again, maybe a solution will present itself right? And 
most individuals who are vulnerable to depression do harbor what we call dysfunctional beliefs about worry or rumination. The, the, the idea is that if I don't worry, something bad's going to happen. If I don't worry, I don't care. If I don't worry or ruminate, I'm a, you know, I'm a bad person of some kind. So what happens is people are often very invested in the rumination. There's something reinforcing about it that's keeping its hooks in the person. I would also say that people will sometimes try to force themselves to think positively and avoid distressing thoughts, images, or memories, which we call thought suppression. And anyone who's familiar with OCD, for example, will know that this has a, what we call a paradoxical outcome where you will actually get a rebound of those thoughts. So they come back even stronger and more prominently than had you just let them come into your awareness in a non-judgmental fashion. So long story short, rumination is a form of cognitive avoidance. It can also maintain and exacerbate episodes of depression because when you're ruminating about everything that's gone wrong or why didn't things go right, I mean, all that's going to do is drag your mind further down uh, into the mud. So the idea here is that we want to be, it's okay to have awareness of when these thoughts come up, but we don't want to draw attention to them and we don't want to engage in that sort of compulsive analytical thinking around what's going on. In the first episode of season three, I'm going to have Dr. Michael Greenberg on the podcast and we're going to talk about his conceptualization of rumination and and, and why it is so harmful and why he believes we have to be proactive about not engaging in that compulsive analytical thinking as much as possible. Yet another mechanism by which I believe that we become depressed and, and frankly stay depressed is by veering away from our values or, or having a disconnection between valued areas of our life that provide positive re- reinforcement in our behavior. And I want to, I want to run you through a little thought experiment that you can do at home for sure, just on a piece of paper. It's nothing too complicated. And it's an exercise I picked up when I was working on the inpatient unit of a psychiatric hospital during my residency. And what we would do is that we would make a list of all these valued areas of life, such as relationship, family, self-care, fun, friends, lifelong learning, community, career, things like that. And then what I would get people to do would be to put down the importance of that area when they're not depressed to them out of 100. 100 being the most important, you know, that they could possibly imagine something being. So for instance, you might put down 90 for relationship, 100 for family, 85 for self-care, 70 for fun, 75 for friends, 60 for lifelong learning, 45 for community, 80 for career. Again, those are just made up numbers, but just to give you the idea. And then what I would have people do would be to rate the amount of behavior that's going into that valued area of life relative to its importance using too little, too much, or just right. So for example, if someone ranked their relationship as being 90 out of 100 important to them, and they're doing very little in day-to-day life in order to service that value, then I would get them to put down too little. On the other hand, if someone put down that, say, their career was only... I don't know, 50 out of 100 important to them, but they are doing way too much and working like 70 hours a week, then I would put that they're doing, I'd get them to put down that they're putting too much behavior into that value. And so what we would see in the course of, you know, having these discussions is that invariably their depressed mood was living in the gap between the importance of that area and the misallocation And again, typically it was that there was too little behavior going into that area of life relative to how important it was. But again, sometimes it could be too much. And again, this is obviously completely a metaphor, but what I believe happens is that, you know, our psyche or soul or however you want to conceptualize it has a scorecard or a a master sort of database with respect to what makes us tick and what's going to provide meaning and a valuable existence. 
And it's always cross-referencing how we're doing in terms of the correspondence between what's important to us, what would give us meaning, what would make a life worth suffering for versus the relative to the behaviors that we are engaging in. So it might be asking questions like, hey, we're someone that really cares about family. How much of our behavior is going into family? And if a lot of our behavior isn't going into family or the appropriate amount of behavior isn't going into family, we're going to generate anxiety and or depressed mood in order to try to propel you towards engaging in more behavior by alerting to you that there's something wrong and something that's misaligned in your in your life. So often the work of therapy is to help people to understand where the misalignment is, where things have gone wrong, and then to brainstorm ways that they could realign themselves with themselves and their lives. And typically their mood will follow along positively in suit with them. Another aspect of understanding depression that I want to draw your attention to is the idea of schemas or core beliefs. And I really take this from uh, Jeffrey Young's model, which is just wonderful. I've referenced it many times in the podcast Schemas are essentially shortcuts for processing ourselves, the world, and other people. And they comprise, you know, I guess like you can think of it as the brain's emotional software. And usually they develop during early adulthood and adolescence. They're typically influenced by parents, siblings, and, and peers, very much in that order. They're comprised of memories, bodily sensations, emotions, and cognitions. And we think that maladaptive schemas or core beliefs develop when core developmental needs are not met. And these schemas help to basically put together algorithms or programs to help us to avoid threat and reduce danger in the face of unmet needs. Things like culture, religion, and the social environment can also shape the development of schemas. One of the interesting things is is that schemas, which are sometimes thought to be functional in childhood to deal with adverse situations, often end up being dysfunctional in adulthood. So there's a mismatch between the environment in which the schema is formed and the environment that is encountered later in adult life when there's a lot more coping and flexibility available to that particular person. Schemas can often develop during pre-verbal periods as well. Their activation is often felt more than verbalized or, or it can be associated with images that can be a bit tricky to sort out. Uh, but that's certainly a dynamic that's there as well. And I think most tragically with schemas, they, they are self-perpetuating in that they generate self-perpetuating behaviors through paradoxical outcomes. As there's countless uh, examples of this, just to give you a quick one, say you have somebody who has core beliefs around defectiveness and emotional deprivation, uh, which would be the core schemas that we find in someone who's narcissistic they through a fight response might say, it's not true that I'm defective. It's not true that I'm going to be emotionally deprived. I'm going to put myself first, put myself out there. I'm going to get my needs met no matter what. And they might end up acting really grandiose and over the top and obnoxious. And people are going to end up rejecting them, which unfortunately will reinforce that idea that they're defective and not going to get their needs met. The very thing that they didn't want to happen. So that's how these schemas work. They cause these, they backfire essentially and give us more of, of exactly what we don't want from a mental wellness perspective. And finally, it's worth noting that everybody has schemas. Most people have between one and three. Some folks have more. I just wanted to take a moment and maybe run you through a handful of these core beliefs that I found that have been to be really, really consistent in the, in clients with depression. The first one is called unrelenting standards and clients who have the unrelenting standards, perfectionism schema. Well, of course they're perfectionistic and driven. They strive to meet standards because they should not for approval. Uh, these clients experience a chronic feeling of feeling uh, pressure to perform that this pressure can feel relentless at times. There's intense anxiety about failing where failing means getting a 95 out of hundred instead of hundred. They are often hypercritical, both of themselves and others. They experience chronic exhaustion. 
often very irritable, usually because things aren't getting done quickly enough or well enough. They're often hyper-competitive. May, they may work incessantly. Uh, there's often an inordinate attention to detail. They frequently underestimate how better their performance is relative to the norm. Uh, these clients often believe that they've either met the standard exactly or they have failed or they ra- rarely take pleasure from success. Uh, and often they lack insight. They don't, they don't view their standards as abnormal. They're just doing quote unquote, what is required. Uh, there's a really interesting approach called RODBT or radically open DBT, uh, which we just did a podcast around this. We spoke with Hope Arnold, who's a trainer and clinician who specializes in RODBT. And this therapeutic intervention has been developed specifically for people who experience this. So if you are somebody who identifies with the list that I just read aloud, you should check out RODBT. I think it might have lots of interesting things to say to you around how you could address this and perhaps get a bit more flexibility and relaxation uh, going in, in your life. Some other core beliefs that come up in depression, especially in high achievers, but not exclusively, is emotional deprivation. This is the expectation that one's desire for a normal degree of emotional support will not be adequately met by others. There's defectiveness shame. This is the feeling that one is defective, bad, unwanted, inferior, or invalid, or uh, unlovable to significant others, or, or will be unlovable to significant others if they're found out or exposed. There's the core belief of failure, the belief that one has failed in life will inevitably fail or is fundamentally inadequate relative to one's peers and in areas of of achievement. Uh, There's the approval-seeking, recognition-seeking schema where there's an excessive emphasis on gaining approval, recognition, or attention from other people. Uh, Self-esteem in these folks is often dependent on the reactions of others rather than some sort of internal sense of self or one's own natural inclinations. And finally, mostly in narcissism, we see entitlement and grandiosity. This is a belief that one is superior to other people. It often involves an exaggerated focus on, the, on superiority in order to achieve power control. There's excessive competitiveness, a, a trend towards one to dominate others, very little empathy. It leads to social exclusion, which in, in itself is a very strong driver of depression. So again, these are just a handful of some of the core beliefs that I see come up quite a bit in a client with depression. I'm going to list this off at the end, but again, one of my favorite books in this respect is Reinventing Your Life by, uh, by Jeffrey Young. Uh, it really go, There's a self-assessment at the beginning. It goes th- through how to determine which core beliefs you might hold both in childhood and now in adulthood. And then each chapter breaks down the core beliefs and gives really, really good explanations and sort of guideposts in order to recognize their activation and what to do differently about it. Just a phenomenal little book, which I've, I've read multiple times personally and professionally. And just one last little dynamic uh, that I want to pass along around what I see sort of make depression tick is that you know, we, we often are unwittingly making our situation worse by struggling against things that are inevitable. So, you know, often in a, in a therapy group that I run every week, I'll ask the question like, hey, even if you do everything in life correctly, is pain inevitable? Are people going to die in us? Is there going to be uncertainty, uncontrollability, rejection, all that kind of stuff? And everyone says, yes, of course. I, I never get any pushback around that. But then when we break it down, what we see is we do struggle against that through avoidance, being perfect, achieving substances, approval, blaming others, blaming ourselves, right? We try, we say, yeah, that's true that those things are inevitable for other people, but not for me. And we try to do things about this. And in the long run, this constant struggle against things which are going to happen in life anyway, backfires leading to burnout, anxiety, disconnection from other people, addiction, depression, things like that. And so we, we call this suffering. And so while pain may be inevitable in life, the suffering part is optional. And so what we want people to do, especially in the context of depression, is to identify where they are struggling against inevitabilities 
and where that's causing them suffering. And, and that's good news because it means you can do something about that. So I just wanted to point out that, uh, that aspect of depression as well. Okay, so now that we've outlined a lot of the different mechanisms around depression from a CBT and evolutionary perspective, I want to talk a little bit about you know, dealing with depression. And again, I won't be able to do as deep dive as, as I probably would be able to like because I'd be adding another probably two or three hours to the podcast. But I did want to give you just sort of an overview and some starting points in case you wanted to follow up around this. So basically, you know, the, the first step is to identify what works. Well, you know, if you look at meta-analyses, gold standard randomized controlled trials, things like behavior therapy or behavioral activation, the very strong research support, cognitive behavioral therapy, and there's a whole list of other ones as, as well. Acceptance and commitment therapy, emotion-focused therapy, rational motive behavioral therapy, self-system therapy, and short-term uh, intensive psychodynamic therapy as well. So there are, when you're looking for a treatment modality, so when you're looking for a therapeutic modality, do your homework, look at the research. If you look on the uh, American Psychological Association's webpage, they will have a list of empirically supported treatments for depression. Generally speaking, anything under the umbrella of CBT, and that's a huge umbrella, there's going to be very strong support. And again, there's I, I'm also quite interested and there's good evidence around intensive short-term dynamic therapy, of which I've had a number of guests on the podcast talking about that especially for things like treatment-resistant depression or where there's some challenges with respect to interpersonal style, things like that. So how does CBT work? Well, it works in a variety of ways. Uh, from a psychotherapeutic perspective, I think what CBT really does is that it interrupts self-defeating patterns of behavior that are self-resonant, meaning that they become self-fulfilling prophecies like that mood loop, right? Where you are, if you act like a depressed person, you generate outcomes in your life that are consistent with a depressed person. And then you continue to believe that you should be depressed and that you're, you know, worthless, unlovable human being. CBT interrupts that through a variety of methods such as thought records, behavioral experiments, behavioral activation. I'll talk about that in just a second. We also know that CBT changes the brain and that CBT helps activate parts of the brain that engage in critical thinking and executive function. And they can push back on some of those more negative automatic thoughts that bubble up from, uh, from other, other areas of the brain, where, and which ha may have a more black and white or catastrophic interpretation about you know, what's going on in your life. Before I get to some of the specifics of treatment, like, you know, why get treatment? And I think there's actually a pretty compelling case here. So, you know, untreated depression really is episodic, recurrent, and progressive. Uh, it's got to be viewed as a chronic condition. And like any chronic condition, you've got to be on top of it and managing it in a really proactive fashion. Untreated, the average length of an episode, you know, can be about eight months. That is a long time if you've ever been depressed to, to suffer in that manner. There's no reason for it. And there's many things that one can do to alleviate the suffering associated with the depressive episode. The, the other piece is that the best predictor of a depressive episode is having had a previous depressive episode. And there's strong evidence that the brain becomes sensitized over time so that each episode decreases the, th the threshold of stress that's required to induce a depressive episode. So while it might have taken a really big stress or say maybe a breakup with your first romantic partner when you're a teenager to cause a depressive episode with untreated successive depressive episodes in life, it might be even just that your internal experience of yourself, just automatic thoughts coming up in your mind in middle age will be enough to precipitate an episode. So that tipping point becomes easier and easier and easier to activate over time. Future episodes are less severe in terms of symptoms usually, but they tend to last longer, again, contributing to lower quality of life, uh, decreased ability to uh, function at work, be productive, things like that. 
And I think really importantly, the severity of symptoms often result in, you know, moderate to severe dysfunction across a variety of domains. So like psychological, marital, professional, familial, financial, social, et cetera. Again, as I alluded to before, when we have a client come in with major depressive disorder, it's often been untreated for a long time and they've got significant and serious challenges going on in almost every meaningful domain of life. Uh, and it can be a real challenge and take a long time to get that ship turned around. So the being proactive is certainly worth it. Any cost you bear to any upfront treatment is going to be an investment rather than a cost. Easy for me to say, but I believe the data would bear that out no problem. Okay, so let's talk for a moment about the value in changing behaviors. So remember that mood loop that we talked about before, waking up, feeling apathetic, going back to bed, YouTube, wormholes, all that kind of stuff. So the big thing we want to do there is just interrupt that pattern. So for example, so instead of going back to bed, maybe you decide to go to the gym. And as a result of going to the gym, maybe you feel a bit more energized. And when, then when you get home, you reach out to a friend instead of going down that YouTube wormhole that makes you feel more valued. And so then you're going to have a nice healthy lunch for yourself instead of having ice cream. Again, a little bit of a cartoon example, but you can see that when you interrupt the behavior, you allow different kinds of data to flow into the system that will disrupt the beliefs and the negative automatic thoughts that are coming up. They might shift your beliefs. And it might shift your be, and then you can shift your behavior even more easily. And then you get that snowball going in the right direction. And again, it might get sound really easy. I know that's difficult, but the idea is as much as you can try to interrupt those self-defeating patterns of behavior that are driven by avoidance that are only generating more evidence in favor of remaining depressed. So your brain can get a different look in on your life than the one that it's had so far. You know, in a nutshell, this is, you know, there's so much more to say about behavioral activation. It's probably its own podcast, but I want to give you some of the key principles around behavioral activation, which is that principle that I just uh, just spoke about here is that the, the key to changing how we feel is changing what we do for reasons that I've just alluded to. We also want to structure and schedule activities that follow a plan, not a mood. And so I'll often say to clients, trust your schedule, not your motivation. Because when you wake up in the morning and if you have to start with a blank slate and you have no idea what to do, you can pretty much guarantee that you're not going to do very much. So have a schedule. Don't, you know, what I always get clients to do is get a to-do list together at the end of the day for the next day. You don't want to start the day trying to figure out what you're going to do. You want to have some set plan ready to go. So you're not starting from a blank slate. Again, trust your schedule, not your motivation. Changes will be easier when you're starting small, just small little things. Going for a walk is better than not going for a walk. You do not need to start off with triathlon training when, when you embark on your behavioral activation journey. You really, as much as possible, want to emphasize activities that are naturally reinforcing, that are tied to your values. Again, there's going to be that resonance there. There's that, again, metaphorical scorekeeper that's looking how we're doing uh, with our behavior relative to what's important to us, and it's going to adjust our mood accordingly. Again, give your mind and body a reason to feel anything but depressed. That's a very, it's a very simple principle. You want to embody a problem solving empirical approach and recognize that all results are useful. If you, if you try out a new workout program and you, you know, you bail on it after two days. Okay, great. That's just information. It just means that it was probably a bridge too far and you need to dial it back and start with walks or something like that. And you also want to actively troubleshoot possible and actual barriers to activation. Now, this is something we spend a lot of time with clients doing where they'll say, hey, I want to start a running program. Like, wonderful. Okay. If that was easy to do, you'd already be doing it. So let's make the assumption that it's going to be difficult and that there's barriers in your way. Like, for instance, do you have proper running shoes? 
Uh, do you have an ongoing injury that you need some physio attention to or something similar to that? So again, a good principle when you're thinking about this is that if it was easy to do, you'd already be doing it. You have to assume there's some barriers in your way. You need to have an honest conversation with yourself about what those barriers are, remove them, and then and only then will you be successful. Okay, so that's the behavioral piece. Let's talk about the cognition piece. So in CBT, we talk about having these negative automatic thoughts and negative automatic thoughts are designed for survival. They are a first draft that your brain just kind of whips up uh, and, and, and sends up for executive consideration. And as such, you know, we, we really want to adopt a mindset of treating our thoughts as ideas or hypotheses that need to be checked out. They're not necessarily facts per se. They're just ideas. And we want to become skilled in identifying what cognitive distortions we're vulnerable to and when they are likely to be activated so that we can filter through those automatic thoughts as they come up and not let them have such a dramatic impact upon our mood. Now, I want to say something very important is that CBT is not about positive thinking or again, I'm air quoting here, getting rid of bad thoughts. That's not what it's about at all. It's about renegotiating the relationship with those thoughts and being more aware of their presence, having a non-judgmental stance towards them, letting them come in and out and moving on with your life and saying, okay, brain, appreciate it. Thank you for letting me know uh, about that. Um, I'm going to show you that there's another way I'm going to get on with this kind of coping. We know positive thinking does not work. And in fact, we know that if you do try to positive think your way out of something and you're not feeling that great about yourself, it's actually going to make things worse because it will only highlight the gap between that which you are trying to achieve and what you feel. It doesn't work. Don't do it. It's more about being realistic. And so speaking of that, you know, we have this tool called cognitive restructuring and cognitive restructuring is about critically considering our negative automatic thoughts and then crafting a credible and believable alternative that's based on data, feedback, reality testing, and investigation. It's not about positive thinking. You know, sometimes there is a kernel of truth to our thoughts, uh, or there is an actual problem with respect to our thinking or behavior that we need to attend to. Pretending that that's not the case is not going to help us. So the bottom line is this. If there's no evidence for the, for the alternative thought that we come up with, like say we're telling ourselves in the face of depression, like I'm amazing and people love me. If there's no evidence for that, it's simply not going to work. Cognitive restructuring really is an empirical process that's data driven. And why? Why is this? Well, our, our emotional mind is skeptical and concrete. It's designed for survival. It won't change based solely on intellectual abstractions. There do, does need to be, again, that proof is in the pudding principle embedded. And I also think too, like, you know, while cognitive restructuring can blunt the intensity of our initial cognitive response, you know, and it gives us some time and space to make a, a different decision. It really does boil down to doing things differently and making decisions, uh, different decisions. That is how things are going to change. And, you know, th there's so many other tools I could go through. There's things like behavioral experiments and, and so on and so forth. Again, if you check out a nice overall book like Mind Over Mood, again, I'll talk about that at the end. That That's a great book with all the basic and, and mainstream CBT strategies in it. That would go, you get a very good overview of those strategies in such a resource. Just a word here about selecting a, a psychotherapist. There are many competent professionals that provide psychotherapy in a variety of public and private settings, depending on where you live. Psychologists, psychiatrists, family physicians, social workers, occupational therapists, nurse practitioners, counselors, registered psychotherapists. There's, there's a real wide variety, all with different fees, uh, experience, education, etc. Many insurance companies, at least in Canada, will only reimburse for services by a licensed psychologist 
or when someone is supervised by a licensed psychologist. So you just need to be aware of that. Often a call to your insurance provider before you get going can save you a lot of hassles down the road. You can also self-refer to many professionals, but your insurance provider may also require that you have a referral from your family physician before those benefits are activated. Of course, a really important aspect of selecting your psychotherapist is that you're comfortable with them, you trust them, you have a good rapport. Uh, There's lots of evidence to suggest that the quality of the therapeutic relationship really is the best predictor of the outcome of therapy. And I I should also say too that therapy doesn't only need to be done individually. You can have a really good result uh, with group therapy as well. I would also say this, effective therapy isn't always comfortable. It requires being pushed out of your comfort zone, approaching that which you've been avoiding, dealing with hard truths, dealing with that which has been emotionally inconvenient to wrestle with, maybe even trauma, you know, so effective therapy is not comfortable. It's kind of like a renovation, right? Where you rip apart the walls and then it's like, whoa, where'd my kitchen go? But you're putting it back together in the service of having an actually functional kitchen uh, at the other end of that renovation. I would say for most people, they can expect to do between four to eight sessions for minor difficulties, eight to 20 sessions for moderate difficulties, and sometimes 20 plus sessions for chronic and or severe problems. And really, we have a problem where we have a one-size-fits-all model where people will do once-a-week therapy for really severe problems. Try to find a provider or a program where you can get a much larger dose of therapy within a shorter period of time, maybe even upwards of five to 10 hours a week if you need it, like a day program or something like that. It's a lot cheaper in the long run, a lot more cost-effective, a lot more friendly to your quality of life, family and friends, to have that depression addressed very quickly in a short period of time through intensive treatment, rather than trying to stick it out with once a week and that going on for two, three years and not being effective. Throw the kitchen sink at it. Life's too short to suffer. You know, Throw everything you can at it. Uh, you'll be happier and better off in the long run. And finally, just some general thoughts about medication. And I want to be really careful here. Of course, in Ontario, as a psychologist, uh, medication is not within my scope of practice whatsoever. These are just general points to follow up with your medical practitioner. Uh, I do think there is definitely a role for antidepressant medication in the treatment of depression, especially if it's severe or suicidal. I've seen this be, again, like life-changing and really, really important to clients uh, when they're in a bad way. Relapse rates can be high when medication is discontinued. And and, and for that reason, a combination of psychotherapy and medication is often thought to be best, especially if the depression is moderate to severe. So while the medication may throw the person sort of a life preserver, if the underlying coping doesn't change, it's very likely that the dysfunction is going to reemerge over time. I also want to say this, like, you know, somewhere along the way, some of our human problems have been reframed as medical problems. And you can't medicate a life situation away. But if someone has lost the ability to cope or get out of bed or access the treatment or benefit from treatment, medication may help reduce symptoms enough for the individual to re-engage. But I I want to say this again, the underlying situation absolutely needs to be addressed. My recommendations around exploring medication is primarily related usually to the person's ability to function or implement strategies, their diagnosis, safety, and suffering. And again, talking to your medical practitioner is a great first step if you're not sure how to blend in medication into your overall treatment plan. Finally, just wanted to recommend a few books that I've found to be really helpful in working with clients. We have Reinventing Your Life by Jeffrey Young and Janet Klosko. An amazing book. It's a challenging read. Not everybody likes it at first because it really sort of rattles the cage a little bit and forces you to think about difficult things. But again, apropos therapy, that's exactly what it's about in many times. 
Uh, there's a great workbook called Overcoming Depression One Step at a Time, The New Behavioral Activation Approach to Getting Your Life Back by Michael Addis and Christopher Martell. That's a great book for exploring that behavioral activation piece that I was talking about before. And it's very interesting. The evidence suggests that if you just do the behavioral activation, that is as effective as doing uh, the cognitive therapy. So there's something about just that behavior that there's so much value there that it's worth exploring. Uh, Mind Over Mood by Dennis Greenberger and Christine Podesky is a classic. Most clinicians would be familiar with this book. Many uh, consumers may be familiar with this book, but that's a classic CBT book. Uh, if you're looking for a good overview of all the mainstream CBT strategies, a great place to start. If you resonate with sort of more of an Eastern mindset or Buddhist philosophy, an ACT approach or the acceptance commitment therapy approach might be a good fit for you. Uh, there's a great workbook called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life by Stephen Hayes with St Spencer Smith. That's a really good book. Now, that book can be a little bit abstract at times, but if you're someone who's a little bit more into mindfulness and existential issues and values and self-compassion, things like that, that's going to be a really great fit for you. And finally, again, because perfectionism can be so pervasive in depression, I always recommend when perfect isn't good enough, Strategies for Coping with Perfectionism by uh, Martin Antony and Richard Swinson. A really great book, very eye-opening, very apropos to the experience of many folks with depression. All right, everyone. Well, I really hope you enjoyed season two of Thoughts on Record. I hope this podcast was helpful to you and provided you with some useful information. Again, if you're finding the content to be of value, a review on Apple Podcasts would be absolutely wonderful and appreciated. Again, you can email the show at oscbtpodcast at gmail.com with your comments or feedback. Again, would love to hear about any guests that you'd like to see featured or any kind of conversations or topics that you'd like covered. And again, thanks so much for listening. Really, really appreciate your patronage of the podcast. I know there's so much content to choose from, and I really appreciate you choosing to devote a little bit of your bandwidth to some of the content that we provide week over week. Take really good care, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.